Welcome to 2050 Miles of Poetry with me, Lee. And me, Charlie. And today is the last day of May, May the 31st. Has that gone quickly for you, Lee? That has gone really quickly. I can't believe it's been a whole month since I was wishing my mum happy birthday on here. Yeah, very strange, very strange. Time time is going at a miraculous rate in the lockdown, are you finding? Yeah, it's crazy. And also, I just can't believe that it's properly summer now. Yeah. We didn't have like a really proper winter and now it's absolutely glorious. So really, really enjoying that. Really happy about that. Weather weather here is also very sunny. And uh, so on this Lovely. Sunday, both of us are inside avoiding the sunshine for a little while yeah, exactly. as we record this. <laughs> <laughs> it's just too much. <laughs> yeah. So are you feeling wistful about the passage of time? Oh, I'm feeling thoughtful about it and mm. um, watching see- the seasons roll through and something beautiful has just occurred where I live in London. Um, there are quite a lot of passages of water and there's one where okay. the water lilies have just come out, which is quite beautiful. Oh, that's beautiful. So, yeah, there's literally... a lot of apple trees out here and they're in bloom and they look really nice. Ah, so you're a little bit behind me then, Lee, because everything, all mm. the flowers are currently out there on the trees, are they? Yeah, yeah. So, so they no, gone for you? they've they've gone here. Uh, they went a couple of weeks ago, uh, but now there are small little apples on the trees. Oh, amazing! So a little. So bit I have to look ahead. forward to the water lilies in two weeks' time. Well, yeah, you have to find out where they are, but then yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Have you seen any strange lockdown sites in the last uh, weekly? Well, lockdown here is getting rather relaxed and I feel a bit uncomfortable about it being so relaxed (laughs) (laughs) because I've been reading so much British media that then when I see it here, things are like getting back to normal. I feel very uncomfortable. (laughs) Oh, oh, right. But I'm trying to lose that uh, British anxiety and just (laughs) embrace the nice weather and the more sociable activities. Well, um, people out at the beach and people in the parks and stuff. Wow. It's all getting quite nice. Well, um, to give you a tale of American anxiety that I saw, which was quite amusing, I saw a baby being baptised at a distance by a priest with a mask on with a water gun. Oh, my God. That's amazing. (laughs) I don't know know if that was real or not. Um, Yeah. Yeah, it's amusing, whatever whatever way we view it. (laughs) Do you have to make a cross on the forehead when you baptise? Because that's probably quite difficult with a water gun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, From a the, distance uh, the of priest after has damn good aim, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's got skills. <laughs> skills with his super soaker. <laughs> exactly. That's amazing. There was a boy at the beach yesterday who also had a massive water pistol that was about the size of him. And uh, he was squirting his mother as she lay sunbathing. <laughs> Did she look happy? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> hard no, hard no. Yeah, yeah, hard no. Are you considering... Um, purchasing a pet to get you through the rest of uh, this strange time really i can lie and say yes or i can tell the truth and say no what would you rather have for the purpose of your response uh, well, whatever you wish <laughs> <laughs> sounded like you were building up for a joke or something <laughs> well, well no i was just going to say that i've seen a lot of people i know um with new puppies and kittens on, really? their, on their feeds yeah and oh, i just wow. think it's funny because in, instead of that i've got a sourdough starter <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> I saw something the other day that um, sourdough starters are like Tamagotchis for hipsters. <laughs> yeah, yeah, loving life. <laughs> loving life. 
Did you take up Pokemon Go? Last week you were saying oh, you were no. considering I still haven't going actually done Pokemon. that. I still haven't actually done that. Well, I meant to ask you, actually, how, what cities around the world have you played Pokemon Go in, Lee? Um... <laughs> Oh, this is so sad. <laughs> <laughs> but quite intriguing. Uh, London, Helsinki, Paris, <laughs> Tokyo. Tokyo, amazing. Exactly. I thought it was Tokyo. Okay, that's really cool. Well, Which and could bring us onto our poems, do you think? I think that brings us perfectly onto our poems. Where, where in Tokyo precisely can you describe what you remember about the Pokemon Go experience Okay, there? I remember that I caught a far-fetched which is the Pokemon that's unique to Japan. So right. you can only catch it there. In... What's the area with the Red Temple and all the little... Is it Asakusa? All the little Oh, yes, I stayed there. Things. I stayed there, yeah, yeah, in a capsule. Yeah, Asa- yeah. Asakusa, yeah. In Asakusa. And my brother was... I was there with my brother and he was uh, looking for a bathhouse to go for an onsen in. <laughs> and I was catching Farfetch. <laughs> <laughs> What, what a wonderful experience. Do you remember anything about, you know, the nature that dusk. surrounded you? It was dusk. Okay, nice. And what, 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 houses, time of year, what time of year was it? It was around September or October, I think. And there was, yeah, dusky, so it was probably quite late, I think. Maybe nine or ten at night. And nice. the little, little takeaways selling the fried noodles and things. Very nice. Yeah, behind, behind the plastic curtains where the light exactly. sort of refracted yellow out. Mm, exactly, through the the material hangings and a subtle glow on the pavement. Oh, beautiful. Very and nice. staring at my phone screen, flicking the Pokeball <laughs> <laughs> at the imaginary bird. Brilliant, brilliant. And then have you found um, when we visited Japan that their seasons are similar to ours? Well, I've visited Japan twice, but I've only, I've been more or less the same time of year each time. Okay. So and, and what was I'm the weather like sure then? About... Was it warm? Yeah, it was warm and it was sort of on the edge of monsoon season both times. So that not monsoon season, like typhoon season. So there was a few typhoons, which, to be honest, the typhoons were very similar to just like a normal windy day. (laughs) But everything shut and you like couldn't buy anything. But I really liked it because you get these like massive see-through umbrellas. Did you see them? Oh, I I don't think I was there at the right time of year for that. But but yeah, I was there when it was a bit sunny still. (laughs) Oh. I mean, it was sunny some days and then occasionally typhoon. But um, yeah, it was still really nice weather. What was it like when you went? Yeah, really lovely, really sunny. I, I went over Christmas, but my but my memory of uh, Asakusa is quite similar to you. So yeah, mm. but that, that brings me on to something that I read while I was travelling through Japan, which was a haiku journey, which is Basho's narrow road to a far province and so I'm going to read a couple of Basho's haikus and talk a little bit about what haiku is and what I was going to do actually because the haikus are quite short to give us more of an impression of them I think I'm going to read them twice how does that sound Lee? Yeah that sounds really good okay give a chance to absorb okay amazing and so are you going to give a little bit of background info on Basho because I must admit I'm not massively familiar with you know what what kind of time period we're talking. Of course, yeah. So it's it's a very long time ago, actually. So it takes us back to a totally different Japan, okay. So, um, which is 17th century Japan. So Basho was born in 1644 and died in 1694. Okay. He was born to a minor samurai who wow. was in service to the lord of the Uno Castle 
which is quite interesting. And then soon after Basho was born, Japan closed its borders, which also feels quite, I think, relevant to now, where mm. even if we wanted to go get... If I wanted to come visit you, it's it's yeah. going to be most difficult. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> most difficult. You might have to swim and Exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so quite a, an inward-looking Japan, which is interesting. Yeah. And at nine years old, um, although it's it's thought that Basho's siblings went to work on farms. Basho became essentially the page boy to the Lord of Uno Castle's son. So okay. he was he was inserted into this different atmosphere where um, he became very interested in literature. Mm. And so um, we're talking uh, Ueno, which is in Tokyo, yeah? Yes. No, yeah. sorry. Um, I believe Ueno is in Kyoto. Iga Ueno, which is between Osaka and Nagoya in Unoshi. Okay. And was Kyoto the capital of Japan at this point? I think it was. Let me see. Sorry, we're getting a bit of a Japanese history lesson here as well. So Kyoto was the capital of Japan for much of the country's history from 1794 to 1868. So yes, in the 17th century, it was the capital. And and that's interesting that you asked that because that takes us to where Basho moved to from the Ueno Castle. And so the Ueno Castle is in quite a rural area, as I said, between Osaka and Nagoya mm. in in modern day Nara. So it's it's an equidistant from Osaka and Kyoto. Okay, cool. Does, does that locate it well for you, Lee? Yeah, it does. Okay, Because you've been to all those places, haven't you? You've been to Nara and Osaka. I sadly didn't Kyoto. actually make it properly into Nara, but I would love to do mm. that when I go back. But it's interesting, this location, and as you said, uh, the reference to Kyoto, because something quite s- sad happened in Basho's life. So the son of the Lord at Ueno Castle died quite young, and Basho then moved to Kyoto, and here he studied under Kigin, a local poet. And this poet was quite interesting in that, um, and I can talk a little bit about that later, in the mm. relationship to how Basho developed haiku. Okay, cool. In his late 20s, Basho moved to Edo, which is modern-day Tokyo, and from his 20s, to the age of 36, he published a lot of poems. And I am going to read you a poem which relates to why he he is referred to as Basho. Okay, cool. How I hate to see reed shoots, now I've planted a banana tree. Neither is the vine of the wild morning glory any friend of mine. And this is a fun poem because at the age of 36, Basho changed his name to that, Basho, which means banana. Um, And and this is because, so although he was originally named Matsu Kinezaku, he changed his name to Basho because uh, his students kept referring to uh, where he lived as Banana Tree Cottage. (laughs) Um, or banana tree hermitage where he had a wonderful banana tree gifted okay. to him by one of his students. And so this is what he he named himself at the age of 36, which is quite interesting. And 
I liked that throughout his life, he'd also published under a couple of other names until he settled on Basho. So he published some of his first poems under the name Toshi, which means green peach. And he also published under the translation of the Chinese poet Li Po, which it means white plum. White plum. Exactly. Cool. So that was one. So, and that was a haiku. And that was not a haiku. That was okay. just a poem. But um, I will find you some nice haiku. Cold white azalea, lone nun, under thatched roof. Cold white azalea, lone nun, under thatched roof. School shake the basho, tree all, night my basin echoes rain. School shake the basho, tree all, night my basin echoes rain. Cherry blossoms, lights of years past. Violets. How precious on a mountain path. So, so um, Lee, what did you think of those? I, I wonder, what, what do you think is the common link through all of them? Well, first, I really like them. They're really relaxing to listen to. And I could probably, it would be really nice to like... Um, almost have an audio book of someone just reading constantly haiku. That would be a nice thing just to have in the background while you work or something, mm. or to go to sleep or something like that. Uh, I would say nature or something. I think exactly. So uh, you got it in one. So that that is one thing that makes um, a haiku a haiku. It has to have something about nature. And there also has to be an element of a haiku that links you to a season. So that's why I was interested when we spoke before okay. about what time of year you were in. Tokyo mm. because this is so deeply embedded in the Japanese psyche mm. what I want to read you um, a little bit more from is uh, from this this book that I read while I was traveling through Japan which is mm. when at the age of 45 he made his most famous haiku journey towards Mikanoku which is Honshu's northernmost province and he made this 1,200-mile journey with his disciple, Sora. And I wanted to read you another poem from that. Okay. And I also wanted to read you a little bit about the foreword, because um, what's quite lovely about this book of poetry and haiku is that it's also a his travel diary, or it's, it's taking aspects from his travel diary in the translation, and trying to paint the scene of where on his Basho's journey he is at that time. Okay, sounds really interesting. Uh, so this is the Takakuma Pine. I simply could not believe my eyes when I saw the famous Takakuma Pine. Just as in olden times the tree rose from the earth, divided into twin trunks, I thought of the 10th century poet priest Nuan. A new governor of the province of Motsu had cut the tree down, and used it for the piers of a bridge across Natori River. And Nuan wrote, No trace there is of that pine now. But I had heard that each time a pine was cut down, 
there, a new one had been planted. This one looked as if it had been growing for a thousand years. What a splendid and beautiful tree it was. When I left Edo, Kyoko Haku composed for me the following verse as his parting gift. Though in thy decline, late cherry, show my master, Takakuma's pine. So I wrote the following for him as a reply. Since late cherries bloomed, I've longed to see the double pine, even these three moons. So uh, well, what I love about that is it's uh, it also, through that very small um, description and poem, you find out so much. And I think that is the purpose of a haiku, that so much is hidden within it so mm. one thing that's interesting is that until 1872 the Japanese people used the lunar calendar and then they adopted the Gregorian system the then which okay. is amazing um, which so year again say that again 1872 for so okay. for such a long time so so you really get a sense of this journey you know it, it's it's such a different Japan to now and it's something mm. we almost can't remember it's a, it's a it's very hard to sort of put yourself there because it's a time yeah. when you know you're 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 very attuned to the rhythms of nature and yeah. it's a very inward looking time to the beauty of japan yes yeah exactly yeah and i also With the then borders closed and everything yeah and then i also just love and it's a little bit like what we're doing although we're not writing our own poetry that it's one friend um writing a poem for another and it's this sort of transference and it's yeah. a, a beauty of poetry in a way you know it's yeah, but it's also um, quite factual. Like the the things he's describing the tree to him and saying, letting him know that he did see the tree. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and the other guy is saying, I hope you see the tree, <laughs> basically. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's interesting that you read it like that because, uh, but there's also supposed to be, the, the thing about haiku is that I think uh, viewing them through a modern lens, this translator says often, you know, you, you you feel as if there isn't much within the poem. Um, however, mm. on closer reading, you realise that there's a depth and it's supposed to sort of often um, haiku will never have a poet describing how they feel, but they want mm. to construct how they feel through the nature and sort of the feeling and the time of year mm. and what we don't get because we don't understand the Japanese language I think there are a lot of d double meanings in the Japanese language yeah so often they're supposed to evoke quite a few feelings just with a very simple three lines mm. and can you tell me a little bit more about the structure of a haiku or what specifically a haiku uh, makes a haiku a haiku so you said it needs to have uh, something about different seasons something about nature and there's a certain amount of syllables or something, isn't there? Or a certain number of lines? Exactly, yeah. So so what I was saying earlier was that when Basha was quite young, he ended up in Kyoto. And there he studied under Kigin, who was a disciple of a Haikai master, Teitoki. <clears throat> okay. And Haikai no Regna is linked verses uh, composed in collaboration. Um, and the haiku is derived from something called a hoku, which is the opening verse of a haikai. Are you with me? 
Yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> so, um, so shall I recap for the listeners? <laughs> see if I understand it and maybe they will. Yeah, too. please. And then I can write a, um, read you a little bit more about um, what a hoku is, which might interest okay. you. So there's Haikai no Renga. Yep. And that is a series of linked verses written in collaboration. And then haiku uh, is derived from hoku, which is the first verse of haikai no renga. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. Let me try and explain a little bit more then about this. Um, So the hoku is the starting triplet and um, has special importance and was always composed by the most distinguished person present. There are two principal requirements. The hoku had to contain a seasonal word and a kireji or exclamatory cutting word such as ya or kana. Kana means how, what, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. Over the centuries, the poetic images of the Heian and succeeding periods became symbolised into little more than so many controversial word combinations that merely needed assembling. Originally, all but disappeared. Then Basho came along, a skilful writer of linked verse. Basho infused new art and sensitivity into the form, raising it from a mere pastime into the realm of true poetry. Basho's greatest contribution was towards making the starting triplet the hoku, an independent poetic form of miniature perfection, later to be renamed haiku. Okay, great. Wow. So he's basically the kind of founder of modern haiku, you could say. I think so, exactly. Yeah. And can you tell about the composition of the haiku? Because then when you read some, I want to be able to listen and... um, See if I can hear the seasonal words and the exclamation words and okay. see if I can hear the sort of number of um, syllables or something. Uh, well, you, um, I, I don't know an awful lot about that, but I do know it's it's always three lines. And, okay, um, three lines. Well, actually, Lee, I wonder if you could notice something else. There's, so there's something you, you usually aren't that into with poetry. And maybe okay. this is why you like haiku so much. So have you noticed that there, there's another aspect to them? They don't rhyme. Exactly, they don't rhyme. So, yeah. um, so they're three lines. They don't rhyme, and it's quite interesting actually because um, although handwritten and written now, they are three lines. But I think when, because of the economy of paper and making back in the seventeenth century, they were the woodcuts were printed on a single piece of paper. So they would actually be printed in the past as a single line, which is quite wow. interesting. Oh, that is really interesting. Okay, I think I found the structure. So it's got a 575 structure. And the numbers relate to moras. And a mora is a sound unit, much like a syllable, but it's not identical to a syllable. So, and it says that this rhythm is often lost in translation, as not every English word has the same number of syllables or moras as the Japanese counterpart. But it's interesting actually reading um, the foreword to this haiku mm. journey because the translation, which is by Dorothy Britton, Dorothy mm. actually says that in the foreword, she she changed some of the words in the translation. So there was an example where she changed the fruit to a pear and that was so as to try and keep the same rhythm as the Japanese version. Okay, interesting, yeah. yeah. And there was I a... think that um, we can talk a lot about translation because that's something I find really fascinating is 
the way that like linguistic works of art can be translated and what a skill that is. Exactly. And it it seems like Dorothy was very skilled because she did a lot of research into um, actually... So she looked at Basho's uh, disciples' uh, Mm. diary of the events and she found differences where Basho had tweaked something or made a slight change to give something a little bit more of a poetic feeling. So she felt like she could again then do a similar change because it felt as if, I think, um, in this particular poem, that actually the fruit might not have been what she translated to a pear. So she thought it was fine to then switch it again. So it's interesting how... And I think she chose a pear because she could imagine uh, a Japanese pear being seasoned at that time and she felt like it was still um, original to the place. So it's, I can it's imagine that when you're a translator, you're having to make a million little judgments of kind of what's more important and what do you prioritize? Do you prioritize the number of moras or syllables or do you prioritize the kind of exact fruit that they were eating? Because if the fruit is related to the seasonal thing and that's like a key part of the haiku, then you could argue, I guess, in certain cases that that would be the most important thing. So, yeah, I think it's really interesting in that way. And I've read a lot of Murakami novels and I can definitely, there's some translators who I prefer and some who I, you know, they kind of ruin the whole novel or it's hard to read some translations because they've got a kind of overly American atmosphere or something or an overly Western atmosphere. Yeah, I agree with you. And I suppose that's especially interesting when thinking back to the time period that this was written. So uh, there's always going to be a modern what what about also like a modern translation yeah, of, a, exactly, of, a, yeah. of an older poet that's quite interesting yeah and you're I'll, doing like three different things in these aren't you exactly so that's quite interesting so I, I, let, let me read you another as an example of that which i think is interesting fields mountains of hubuku in nine days spring and there's a there's a little description about that which is quite interesting which is okay. um Hubaku was a district near Kyoto known for its orchards. Nine days, not even a ten-day period, a conventional Japanese time division. So uh, that's that's taking us back to a different... We, we can't imagine that because we have a seven-day week, so it's just interesting yeah. sort of... Say that again because of the, I was completely lost. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's not a sorry. It's my <laughs> <name>. <laughs> Hubaku was a district near Kyoto known for its orchards. Nine days, not even a 10-day period, a conventional Japanese time division. And let me read the haiku again for you, Lee. Yeah. Fields, mountains of Hubaku in nine days, spring. Okay. So he's sort of talking about a week in spring in this orchard. Yeah, and I suppose the feeling of, you know, only a week till spring, like mm. that, maybe that anticipation. Yeah, and I guess in an orchard, a place like we were just talking about with the apple trees in bloom and things. It's exactly. It's like a very obvious visual. And the lovely thing about this book, actually, I'm reading from now, which is, um, it's called, it's a penguin classic on love and barley, haiku of Basho. Well, may, maybe it's a good or a bad thing. It's interesting how both, books i'm reading from present haiku this actually presents a lot of haiku on one page so it presents Mm. six all spaced uh quite equally from each other so there's a bit of breathing room so you still read one as uh, 
on its own, but you get a sense of how they all relate together, which is nice. Yeah. And I just wondered if you wanted to um, pick a number, Lee, because they all have similar themes and are quite beautiful. And okay. uh, so you can pick any number up to 252. Okay. 118. 118. And I, I think there are questions to ask whether whether immediately this haiku, of course, will fit what we discussed a haiku as being. Mm. Let's check it out. <laughs> Nothing more lonely. Heart-shaped. Polonia leaf. Okay. <laughs> so what was the first line of that? The first line was... Nothing more lonely, heart-shaped, no. Paulonia leaf. So nothing so heart more heart-shaped was the middle one? Yeah. On its own? Yeah. So that's the one that's supposed to have seven syllables, which obviously heart-shaped has nowhere near seven. So that's been an interesting kind of... Um, translation. Translation decision, yeah. What yeah. was the first line? Nothing more lonely. Nothing more lonely. So that has five. And the last line? Paulonia leaf. Paulonia leaf. Yes, that has five. That's interesting. So we have to stretch heart shape to seven <laughs> syllables. Well, <laughs> I find this interesting on another level as well, because um, reading about Basho, um, yeah. when he went to Kyoto, he also um, studied um, Zen Buddhism. So mm. he... he um, he stopped um, those earthly pleasures in, with another person. And I think it's because uh, he was in love with, I think, somebody in the Ueno Castle where he'd grown up. Okay. And, and so, but then he, so he very much almost has a spiritual, religious almost, ex or maybe let's just say spiritual experience on the, this journey or mm. pilgrimage almost because he has denounced this aspect. Yeah. So when you read this book, do you feel like you're on the journey with him? Can you tell the changing of the seasons and things? I think so. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Sounds awesome. Well, you get the little and you get that it's the lovely feeling of him traveling through different places. Mm. As a tiny aside to this conversation, talking about translation, I just wanted to read one thing that I think is really interesting about translation. And it's from the novel Drive Your Plough Over the Bones of the Dead by Olga Tokazuk. Not a happy um, novel then, Lee. That doesn't sound particularly cheerful. <laughs> no, it's not particularly happy. <laughs> but part of the central conceit of this novel is that a pair of the characters are translating William Blake okay. from English into Polish. And there's just this paragraph that I'll read you that's kind of about their process of making the translation and about the sort of choices that they're making. So, when Dizzy arrived that afternoon, he'd caught a cold. We were now working on The Mental Traveller, and right at the start, a dispute arose over whether we should translate the English word mental as mental me, mental in the literal sense, meaning of the mind, or tukovi, more like spiritual, sneezing, Dizzy read out loud the original text. I travelled through a land of men, a land of men and women too, and heard and saw such dreadful things as cold earth wanderers never knew. First we each wrote out our own translation. In the trochaic meter, more natural to Polish verse, 
Then we compared them and started to wind our ideas together. It was a bit like a game of logic, a complicated form of Scrabble. Over human lands, I wondered, lands of men and also women, seeing, hearing things so fearful, such as no mind ever summoned. Or, through the world of men I journeyed, realms of men as well as women, hearing, seeing sights so awful, no pure soul would ever dream on. Or, throughout the world of men I wandered, crossing realms of men and women, what I saw and heard was ghastly, such as none would ever dream on. Why have we insisted on putting the word women at the end? I asked. What if we made it men's and women's land? Then the rhyme would be with land, hand or stand, for instance. And what I think is really interesting is this novel was originally written in Polish. So I'm reading an English translation of a Polish novel where they're translating an English poem into Polish. So the person translating this novel has had to then translate Polish translations of the Blake poem back into English. <laughs> That's amazing. In, in a way that makes them like clear that they're not the Blake poem. <laughs> yeah. So it's really weird. It's really like um, a meta version of what we've just been talking about. And I noticed that that's one of these beautiful Fitzcarraldo editions, is it, Lee? Oh, uh, yeah, it is. Oh, so desirable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> would, you, would, you, would you recommend the book? Uh, yeah, it's really good. I think she won the Nobel Prize for Literature a couple of years ago, or maybe even last year. And it is a good book. It is slightly boring in the middle, if that's... <laughs> not okay. blasphemous to say so, so, so listeners uh check it out but yeah just just work your way through the the middle yeah exactly <laughs> well um there's one thing i wanted to ask you lee actually how did you find the poet that you've now chosen i'm really intrigued because i was very excited when i heard her poetry and i just wondered how you um uncovered her because um frustratingly i don't know many translated female Japanese writers. Maybe I need to find more. Yeah, so mm. the only one I know is Banana Yoshimoto. Okay. And is she a poet or...? She's just a writer. Uh, okay. Not just a writer. She's a very good writer. <laughs> um, but interestingly, I believe um, she's often also, because of, I suppose, Japanese culture is uh, quite male-dominated, She's often almost referred to as the daughter of her father, who was also a writer. Okay. Well, I would like to say that I'm an expert on feminist Japanese literature, but that would be lying. And basically, I wanted to find a more contemporary Japanese poet to contrast with yours. And I was simply Googling contemporary Japanese poets. <laughs> <laughs> and she was one of the first ones that came up. But I really, really like her poetry. I really so like it as well. Yeah, so we're talking about Rin Ishigaki, and she was born in Akasaka in Tokyo in 1920, and she worked as a bank clerk in the Industrial Bank of Japan from 1934 to 1975, and she became known as the bank clerk poet in Japan because it was quite rare for a woman to hold down a full-time job at that point in the 60s. So that was considered like a really unusual thing. And that became the thing that she was defined by, was this idea that she worked as a bank clerk. And brilliant. Did she have a pen name like Basho did or not? Or did she change her name, I wonder? Well, this is actually really interesting because her most famous poem is called Nameplates. 
And I was going to read that last, but I can read that now because it really links to what you've just been saying. So here we go, nameplates. When you live in a place, you'd best provide the nameplate yourself. When you abide in a space, the nameplate another affixes never works out. I went to the hospital and they added Ms. to the card on the sick room door. Ms. Ishigaki Rin. At a hotel, they put no name on the room. But when I get in the cremation oven and they slam the door, the tag they will hang will say Ishigaki Rin Esquire. And much they'll care what I think then. Ms. or Esquire, neither fits. When you live somewhere, you'd best hang out the nameplate yourself. And to the space where your spirit dwells, a nameplate must never be affixed by any other hand. Ishigaki Rin, that will do. So it's the opposite of what you're saying. She didn't want to take a pen name. She wants to be known by her own name and nothing more and nothing less. I like that, yeah. Yeah, and it's kind of, I guess there's a lot of stuff about identity there that you shouldn't let other people define you. Perhaps but she, she was wasn't. defined by being a poet that was a bank clerk. Well, exactly. Well, the kind of place that I'm reading this poem is on a blog by a Japanese translator. Again, someone who translates Japanese to English. And she's saying that this poem might have been a reaction to that, that label that she was given as a poet of the bank clerk. So, yeah, it's really interesting. She just wants to keep her own identity. And I think there's that strong sense of self is quite apparent in most of her poems. And she was also an active trade unionist. And her major poetry collections, she did four of them, and they were published between 1959 and 1984. And she won quite a lot of literary prizes and things during that time. And just to put that in context of her life, she would have been 39 in 1959 when her first poetry collection came out and 75 in 1984 when the last one or the last major one came out. So how, how old was she when she died, Lee? What? So she died in 2004. So that's 90, no, 84. No, so she wouldn't have been 75. She would have been 65 <laughs> in 1984. <laughs> I'm terrible at maths. Testing you there. <laughs> yeah, hopefully she was better at maths than I am being a bank clerk. So, so how, um, so did she make poetry through any of her life and while she wasn't a bank clerk? Did, did those did those activities always overlap or did they... Uh, well, she stopped being diverge? a bank clerk in 1975 and she kept writing. Uh, the last major collection was published in 1984. So, yeah, she did. She was a, quite a popular contemporary poet and, um, yeah, her work deals with kind of different subjects from sort of things that now we might regard as feminist to concerns about sort of nuclear war and kind of environmentalism. So it's all quite topical to today's current climate as well. Maybe not with nuclear war, but certainly <laughs> with a sort of impending doom. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. So the first one, or the second one that I'd like to read is called At the Bathhouse. In Tokyo, at the public bathhouse, the price went up to 19 yen. And so... When you pay 20 yen at the counter, you get one yen change. Women have no leeway in their lives to be able to say that they don't need one yen. And so though they certainly accept the change, they have no place to put it and drop it in between their washing things. Thanks to that, the happy aluminium coins soak to their fill in hot water 
and are splashed with soap. One yen coins have the status of chess pawns, so worthless that they're likely to bob up even now in the hot water. What a blessing to be of no value in monetary terms. A one yen coin does not distress people in the way a 1,000 yen note does, is not as sinful as a 10,000 yen note. The one yen coin in the bath with healthy naked women. And I really like that. I think there's a lot of humanity in that. Very, very visual, like Basho's poems, very visual, just mm. in a different way and sort of evoking a lot, I think, yeah, beneath the story of the poem as well. Exactly, yeah. And it's kind of mundane, but at the same time, there's a lot of double meanings there. A bit like you were saying with the haiku, that there's words that can mean two things a little bit, like, what a blessing to be of no value in monetary terms. She's ostensibly talking about the coin, but really... Women. I think she's yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's really beautiful. Does and that also, does that take you sorry, go on. <laughs> yeah, I was I think I was about to answer your question. <laughs> I was gonna say, Lee, does that take you back to uh submerging yourself in uh any any nice Japanese baths? Yeah, exactly. It takes you to the onsen and the whole kind of ritual of um getting washed before going in and having the little towel on your head and things like that and uh being sort of naked in the washroom bit. And the gender segregation, which is interesting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. How did you find that in your experience? Um, I, well, um, I think uh, the onsen that was most similar to that I went to was um, on the art island, which I think you mm. also went to. Yeah. In Naoshima. So, in Naoshima, exactly. So I think I would have experienced the female side of the wall mm. and you would have experienced the male side of the wall. Yeah. And do you remember <laughs> what was on top of that wall? Uh, oh, I believe there was on on top of the ceiling. Am I right? There was a stained glass which um, filtered light through it, and there was a plants at one end of the bath. Mm. And but on top of the wall, there was a very very large sculpture of an elephant. I do and remember that, that. Yeah, that, yeah, that being the elephant in the room. That oh, the genders are kind of together but segregated. So <laughs> that's funny. I didn't. I didn't yeah. get that. Okay, I love that. Yeah, because <laughs> that onsen is by the pop artist. Uh, let me just find it. So for listeners, it's called "I Love You Onsen," and it's on the island of Naoshima, which is this amazing utopia. <laughs> yeah, utopia. Of well, you can describe it while I look this up, Charlie. Um, how would I describe it? It's 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 a island full of uh, coloured pumpkins that look out to sea, and um, incredible architecture, um, and art, um, and experiences, and incredible food. You can see it's it's set in the past almost. You can see fishermen drying octopus out if you run around the island. It's an incredible place. Yeah, and there's a lot of kind of large-scale art installations that are embedded as part of the kind of villages in the island and things. So there's and these the landscape. art houses. Yeah, and the landscape. So there's these uh, old houses that have been renovated into kind of large-scale installations, and they're called art houses. Um, and then there's this I Love You Onsen by Shinro Otaki, and he's a contemporary Japanese artist, and he's also done one of the art houses. But yeah, that art house is like a kind of, the art onsen, sorry, is like a collage of different pop culture references, isn't it? There's like yeah. all sorts of weird signs and strangely bright colored, brightly colored sculptures and things. 
Yeah, and I think that it has a lot, a lot of interesting attributes um, that bathhouse because um, it, it's also a place because it's only relatively recently this island became an art island um, and mm. it's a place for the locals to bathe and visitors to bathe so it's this amazing experience of mixing different people together which although we can't yeah. imagine now it would be nice to believe it will happen again in the future <laughs> yeah and it's also um interesting to mix popular culture and traditional japanese culture in the way that it does as well for instance the um when you go there you have to buy the towel and things and you buy it through a vending machine don't you where you put like the coin in and then it gives you this little vacuum packed package with your towel and your little bit of um, soap and stuff. So it's sort of like taking the really high tech Japan concept of the vending machine that you see everywhere and the sort of low culture and then um, applying that to the really traditional bathhouse vibe. But that's interesting, but I suppose that's another way we can read the, that poem again, thinking of what the coin is in Japanese culture, I suppose, modern yeah. Japanese culture. Yeah. There's Would you like layer. me to read it again? To, yeah, um, please do. I, I, yeah. Really, I really enjoyed that. In Tokyo, at the public bathhouse, the price went up to 19 yen. And so, when you pay 20 yen at the counter, you get one yen change. Women have no leeway in their lives to be able to say that they don't need one yen. And so they certainly accept the change. They have no place to put it and drop it in between their washing things. Thanks to that, the happy aluminium coins soaked to their fill in hot water, and are splashed with soap. One-yen coins have the status of chess pawns, so worthless that they're likely to bob up even now in the hot water. What a blessing to be of no value, in monetary terms. A one-yen coin does not distress people, in the way a 1,000-yen note does, is not as sinful as a 10,000-yen note, the one-yen coin in the bath, with healthy naked women. Brilliant. Well, a really nice atmosphere, hasn't it? Really nice atmosphere. I, I, I have just a poem to sit up against that, if, if I'm allowed just one more leave, yeah, awesome. if you'll allow it. Go for it. And, and then I would <laughs> love a little bit more um, of her poetry. I just think that this is really interesting in utter contrast. This is again read from Basho's Narrow Road to a Far Province. Sakata. After leaving Mount Haguru, we went to the castle town of Tsura Ka Oka, Crane Hill, at the invitation of a samurai, Nagayama Ishi, uh, at whose home we composed a set of 36 stanzas, stanzas of linked verse. My disciple Yushi Sakiki was there too, having come with us this far from Haguro Yama. We then went by riverboat down to the port of Sakata where we stayed at the home of the physician Enan Fugioka. And relating to that, there are two uh, haiku I would like to read, Lee. Cool. From far hot spring hills, all the way to windy beach, how cool the evening view. The river Mogami has drowned the hot summer sun and sunk it in the sea i just wanted to read that because i just think it sits interestingly up against modern japan but mm. but but take me take me back to modern japan lee okay the second one i would like to read is called 
in front of me the pot and rice pot and burning flames and and this is from her first collection which was published in 1959 and was called in front of me the saucepan the pot and burning flame and so here we go there have been for ages objects always placed in front of us women a pot of sufficient size to match our strength and a rice pot designed especially for fat simmering shiny rice and in front of the glow from the fire that we have inherited from the beginning of history were always our mothers and grandmothers and their mothers also what amount of love and faithfulness did they pour into these objects at times it was red carrots black kelp diced fish in the kitchen there always occurred the correct preparations for breakfast and lunch and dinner before the preparations there were always rows of warm hands and knees ah were it not for these rows of people how could the women have so cheerfully done the cooking time and time again this is the face of an indefatigable love this is the face of service performed day after day so that it becomes a matter of routine the mysterious irony that made cooking the task of women was not ill fortune i believe because of it learning and worldly status may lag behind but it is not too late what is in front of us is the pot and rice pot and burning flames and in front of us these beloved objects just like we cook meat and potatoes with a deep love let us study politics and economics and literature not for the sake of pride or worldly fame but in order for these things to be offered to all humanity to work towards these things with humanity itself as the object of our love that was a lot lee um it was I, a lot i i i feel her deeply yeah. but um well, what do what do you take from that i think it's really um beautiful and like deeply felt and yeah humane interesting that she uses the word humanity there it's kind of feminist in the contemporary use of it to be like you know equality to all people and it reminded me of the film that i think we both watched the other day this um what was it called little sister yeah our little sister which i think was by the same director as shoplifters and in that there was these four sisters who were living together and they kind of spanned generations slightly and a lot of that film was showing them cooking together and and eating eating yeah. plums and making plum wine yeah exactly and showing how to make different kind of curries and the relationship that the food had with their memories of their kind of parents and things that maybe weren't with them anymore and i think that it says a lot about the relationship of food to japanese culture and kind of how it relates in a sort of significant way to memory and things like that food food and nature food that perhaps also isn't too um cuz she she says black kelp and there are a couple of other things in a sentence there doesn't she and that makes yeah. you know you think you um when i was in japan i went and saw how um seaweed was traditionally processed and cut mm. into ribbons which was quite beautiful and it just takes yeah. me back to sort of the the purity of some of the ingredients that are put in and again yeah. The, the the link for the Japanese culture back to nature. And mm. I wonder if, in a way, that's more how modern contemporary Japanese who live more in cities 
are mm. more again connected to nature. Does she have any other um, poems? You said that another key theme is the environment. Does she talk much about nature? Did you say she lives yeah. in Tokyo or where does she live? Yeah, she was born and lived in Tokyo. But I can read another one that's quite natural. But what I, one thing that just I just thought of from what you said about the purity, the prose is very pure, isn't it? Or the poems are very pure. They're not lyrical in the way that some Western poetry is. If you think of like the Dylan Thomas that we read a few weeks ago, or maybe even uh, Sylvia Plath and Seamus Heaney, they're quite lyrical about nature and about their topic. And I think that hers, although they're discussing in some ways similar themes, I think that in some ways her themes are quite similar to Seamus Heaney. They're sort of about assessing her own place in kind of contemporary culture. She does it in a much more pure way I feel that she doesn't feel the need to use uh, flowery or lyrical language and I really like that it's almost like the words have more meaning because they're so simple red carrots black kelp diced fish if you think of the it's very kind of straight to the point but beautiful because it's so clear what she's talking about yeah And and the thing itself that she's describing is beautiful so it's it's, yeah. it's simply, it's a little bit like the Basho poems, you know, mm. you're using um, limited description to evoke something. Yeah, in the reader. And it's the reader who's almost making their own feeling from that. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really amazing. Okay, we can try this one for another one about nature, as you asked. So this one's called Motherland. This summer, I went to Kamakochi. The towering mountains were huge. I was small. The friend who went with me was also small. Everyone was so small. Any comparison was ludicrous. The trail wound round the mountain like a single thread, finer than a thread. It continued on ever more faintly. I climbed up the trail. When I came to the summit, I had grown wonderfully big, as big as the mountain, Beneath my friend's feet, the huge mountains went on and on. The villages and towns were far off, indistinct and tiny. The trail ascended the mountain was narrow, but good enough for people to follow. If, on the trail I had just climbed, the authorities had placed a single guard and directed a single notice saying no entry beyond this point, nobody could have climbed one step upon that dark trail from the foot of the mountain, through the striped bamboo grass, in the small place at the bottom of the mountain, people, face to face, would have had to narrowly minded compete with each other. For that reason, they would have been deprived in body and mind. They would have forgotten their own potentialities and the vast sky and life with all its prospects. They would have become servile and unhappy. The field of alpine flowers on the peak was shrouded in cloud and mist, Birds were there too. I believe that if people do not go there, no creature will. It was a quiet, lovely place. If people don't go there, who will? If even the people who live there don't go there. I was overjoyed by there being no notice on the trail I had just glanced back at. It was a mountain trail where nothing like a notice should be. On the mountain top, where nothing like that should exist, I yelled out without knowing why. If someone erects a notice here, I'll tear it out, unafraid. I'll tear it out, regardless of the cost. 
I, I enjoyed that, yeah. Well, it, does that also show, I suppose, how strict certain elements of Japanese society are and that it's, it's you know, she wouldn't be surprised if a notice did appear on this uh, place yeah. where there shouldn't be a notice because it just should be a public uh, liberty. Uh, yeah, I think so. And it feel, I also like the choice of that one because it feels... It feels very a little bit like British police during lockdown. <laughs> mm. Yeah, definitely. It sort of is about environmentalism, but from a very personal point of view, isn't it?、Mm. I like that in the middle of the poem, she just goes off on this sort of fantasy about what the world would be like if there was this sign and how bad it would be. And I guess she's kind of using that as an example of what life would be like if we didn't have access to nature, kind of full stop, for various reasons, not just because of a sign or whatever. So it's again, sort of, you can extrapolate wider meaning from the quite simple examples that she gives.、Mm, it's very true. And I suppose it's quite beautiful that on, in the poem we get to the peak, and it's at the peak that there is、um, the most description of the nature,、mm. interestingly. I think. Uh, that's where, other, other, other than the peak, I think she just described、um, the bamboo grass at the foot. And、yeah. then at the peak,、uh, there is the contrast, and we get the alpine flowers and a field, I think, which is,、mm. I've quite enjoyed the fact that, you know, you can then extrapolate that more deeply, as you say. Yeah, and I really like this line I believe that if people do not go there, no creature will, because it kind of. Reduces us to nature, or not reduces, but shows that we're, we're just animals, we're just part of nature as well. We, why should we have any more or any less rights than any other animal? Beautiful. Is that, is that like... a good one to end on? Or, or no, one more always. Yeah, would you like one more? One more. Okay, I'll give you a choice of titles. So, Roof, Living, or The Economy? I'm going to go with. The, the oddball one. I'm going to go with roof. <laughs> okay. Roof. In Japanese homes, the roofs are low. The poorer the home, the lower the roof. The lowness of these roofs weighs heavily on my back. What can the weight of this roof be? Staring from ten paces away, it is something on top of the house. Not the blue of the sky, but the darkness of the colour of blood. Something that seizes me and obstructs my future. Something that consumes and imprisons my strength within the narrow confines of that house. My sick father lives on top of the roof. My stepmother lives on top of the roof. My brothers and sisters also live on top of the roof. When the wind blows, it makes a popping noise on that galvanized iron, ramshackle roof about the size of two rugs. When you look, radishes are also there, rice is also there, and the warmth of my bed. Under the weight of this roof, ordering me to bear its burden, a woman's spring, my spring, comes to a close. Far, far away, the sun sets. So, is, is that about the end of her life? Is that when she wrote it?、Mm, I'm not sure when she wrote that one. I know that she was caring for her parents for, and her father was very ill. So perhaps it's about the kind of reflections on mortality and maybe his life. Yeah. Maybe well, her life as well. 
one thing I find interesting um, that that you said earlier, and I suppose a link to from the modern Japan to the old Japan, and just how different time was.、Mm. Um, Basho died of old age at the age of fifty. She died、wow. at the age of eighty-four.、Um, yeah, and I think that that just says a little bit. And both of them were born two hundred and seventy-six years apart. So.、Wow. I wonder if, at the point in her life, when she was perhaps caring for her parents, that would have been the equivalent of his last walk and when he died. Interestingly, yeah, it probably would have been. That's amazing. And their period of production, I suppose, as poets, because of、It's、similar、that. length, yeah. Yeah, she wrote from thirty-nine to sixty-five, and he started in his twenties. Did you say, or even earlier? I think even earlier than his twenties. Even so, earlier, yeah. yeah. Wow. Would you like to hear one more, Charlie? Lee, I'd love to. You know, both、okay. you, your and my obsession with Japan, I think, is shining forth. Yeah. So this is one more that I think kind of、um, gathers up all the threads we've been talking about. So the kind of aging and caring for her parents and the love of food and money and some other things in Japanese society. So does she love money, Lee? I did. I didn't gather that. <laughs> No, she doesn't love money, but she talked. She worked in the bank, and、okay. the first poem was about the one yen coin. Yeah, no, I, I just wanted you know. to clarify whether you thought she had love of money as well. No, no, I think she has an interesting relationship with money. That、um, yeah, she. I think she sort of rejects it a bit. She doesn't see it as a.、Uh, maybe I get the feeling she maybe sees work as a sort of means to independence for her, but perhaps as a bit of wage slavery for some other people. So here we go, living. I can't survive without eating. Rice, vegetables, meat, air, light, water, parents, brothers and sisters, teachers, money too, hearts too. I couldn't have survived without eating. With my belly full, when I wipe my mouth, scattered about the kitchen, carrot tails, chicken bones, my father's guts, my fortieth sunset. For the first time, the tears of a wild beast filled my eyes. Did she say her fortieth sunset, Lee? Yeah. So, do we read that as her fortieth birthday, perhaps? Perhaps, yeah. So, yeah, let's end with that one, and listeners can muse on that. I think there's a lot in there, again, in a very concise way, which kind of links to the haikus. So, maybe that's a good one to go out on. Beautiful. Well, thank you very much, Lee. I really enjoyed that. And, yeah, I、um, really enjoyed that as well. Shall we say over and out? Let's see over and out. Aloha. Bye. <laughs>